Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Tuesday, July 25th. Now, a very informed take on the history behind the movie Oppenheimer. Fred Kaplan, military affairs columnist for Slate, has written two books on the subject, The Wizards of Armageddon, which came out in the 80s, and his much more recent 2021 book, The Bomb, Presidents, Generals, and the Secret History of Nuclear War, for which he was on the show for a book interview. Now he's also written a kind of historical fact-check article slash movie review about Oppenheimer on Slate. Spoiler alert, he says most of it, including some Some parts that might seem unreal are real. And by the way, Fred also has a much shorter piece about the geopolitical implications of the Barbie movie, believe it or not. So we'll touch on that, too. Fred, always good to have you on. Welcome back to WNYC. Oh, anytime. You write the film, Oppenheimer, is a mind blower both for director Christopher Nolan's artistic innovations and also because of the story itself. Can you actually start just briefly for people like me who haven't seen it yet by saying what you mean by artistic innovations? What's new visually in this film to your eye? Well, this film, above all, it's kind of an immersive exploration of what it is like to be Robert Oppenheimer. I mean, he's thinking about completely new concepts in physics and their implications in the real world. And there are these visual flashes that that sort of illustrate this. And surprisingly, it's kind of convincing. Uh, There's a scene toward the end of the film uh, where he's giving a speech to his fellow scientists after the Hiroshima bomb sort of uh, congratulating everybody for for succeeding. And yet things are zapping through his head, horrible images uh, that illustrate his ambivalence about the bomb. Now, I don't know. Nobody knows whether he was feeling ambivalent at that moment. Mm -hmm. But we do know that uh, both before, during, and after, he had tremendous ambivalence about the bomb. And I think this was just kind of a brilliant... uh, visualization of this psychological uh, phenomenon. So that's what I mean. I think it was uh, really, uh, given all that's packed into this film, and I've seen it twice, and and the first time I I spent too much time worrying about whether people who weren't familiar with this history are really going to be following any of this. But I, I don't think that's I, – I, I think he actually got away with it. I, I think it's, it's in, a, in a narrative and artistic sense, a pretty brilliant feat. And on it as an immersive visual experience of being Robert Oppenheimer, as you describe it, there's all this talk now, should I see it in an IMAX, see it in 70 millimeter, and I see the tickets at those kinds of theaters are being sold out way in advance of regular screens uh, locally. What kind of screen did you see it on? Well, I saw it, the first time I saw it was at a screening with a panel, and it was in kind of a movie theater in a hotel, and it was in digital cinema projection. It was just kind of high definition. And it was okay. Then the second time I saw it was at a screening at the IMAX 70 millimeter uh, theater on the Upper West Side. And yeah, the picture was much better. One thing, uh, 
the sound, and I don't know if it was at that theater or just where we were sitting, but the dialogue was sometimes hard to make out. And I've been to some other Nolan film on an IMAX screen where the bass was turned up way too high, apparently at his direction. So I don't know. I've heard other people who had no problems at that theater hearing anything. I would say at least see it in 70 millimeter if not in 70 millimeter IMAX, you know, it's so 70 millimeter film is such a wonderful medium. And and there are so few theaters that, that even have the capability. And there are a few in New York. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think it's even worth the wait to, to, to see it at least in 70 millimeter or 70 millimeter IMAX. There you go. And you write that the film is mostly... <clears throat> A faithful portrait, especially perhaps in the scenes that some might assume are made up or exaggerated. Can you give us an example of one of those? Well, for example, it starts out with Oppenheimer as a grad student in England where he's kind of going crazy. And at one point he gets really angry at his professor, who is a very notable physicist named PMS Blockett, and injects poison into his apple. And he takes it away before the professor has a chance to eat it. But certainly that has to be exaggerated. Well, no, it, apparently there are a few sources indicating that that really did happen. Um, that That's that's the one that I know when I told people they were most surprised that, that it was uh, huh. true. There's, it's also true in one scene, uh, he's about to give a lecture uh, on physics, the new physics to an audience in the Netherlands and starts speaking in quite fluent Dutch. And apparently he really did teach himself Dutch hmm. over a period of a few weeks before giving this lecture. I mean, he was almost kind of outer space spooky brilliant about, uh, hmm. I mean, he, he's talking with, with a communist at one point who's correcting his, uh, whether Marx talked about property or ownership and, Oppenheimer says, oh, well, I read it all three volumes of Capital in the original German. I oh. mean, he, he was he was quite fluent and well studied in in literature, philosophy and history uh, in in English, French, German. And he was teaching himself Sanskrit, which is that which is where that phrase I am become death destroyer of worlds comes from. So yeah, he was that he, was, that he said, well, explain that. That's that's a quote from well, the Bhagavad Gita, right? Later, that when the bomb went off, he thought of a phrase from the Bhagavad Gita. I am, I am uh, become death destroyer of worlds, uh, which sounds kind of pretentious, and I guess sort of is. Uh, other reports say that basically when it happened, he said it works. <laughs> but um, mm. but he was he he was kind of teaching himself how to read Sanskrit, and apparently had read the Bhagavad Gita. So. Uh, and, and he looks, you know, the, the actor who plays him, I mean, it's a remarkable portrayal. And if you look at <clears throat> photographs or film footage of the time of, of, of Oppenheimer, he was bone thin, kind of had this lanky demeanor and this off-centered gait and had these uh, spectral, wide blue eyes. And he really does look and act quite a lot like him. It's, it's, it's remarkable. But you portray Oppenheimer as insistent on his independence as a scientist with all that brilliance, 
but also pliant in his role as a mere advisor to authority, as you put it. Can you give us an example of how those attitudes came into conflict for him? Well, you know, this was a very new thing, a team of hundreds of mainly theoretical physicists doing a project for the U.S. military building a bomb. I mean, Isidore Rabi, who was a good friend of Oppenheimer, and Oppenheimer asked him to join the project, and Rabi didn't want to do it. Uh, he saw the point, but he says, I don't want the climax of 300 years of physics to be the destruction of a, of a bomb that can kill hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, at the time when the Manhattan Project was set up, which was what they called, was the code name for this project to build an atomic bomb, there was re there were reports that the Germans were working on a, on a bomb, and they had brilliant physicists. And it was thought that well, if the Germans beat us to the bomb, they're going to use it, and we're going to lose World War II. And so the initial impetus was that that was the motive. Then in in, in 1945, the Germans surrender, and there were many people, including some scientists, who said, "Well, look." The Japanese don't don't have. They're not working on a bomb. We're done. We we shouldn't use this as a weapon. And Oppenheimer's position, at the time and after, was: Look, this is not our decision to make as scientists. Uh, besides, what do you guys know about Japan? Uh, there was some intelligence, and this is still a matter of some dispute among historians that the Japanese were never going to surrender. They were going, you know, whatever the, the the high command of the Japanese military was, and especially their junior officers, were they had they were willing to fight to the last man. And, and we were planning an invasion in November, and, and tens of thousands of Americans would be killed. And if you're the president or anybody else at the time, and you're thinking, well, here, I have this huge weapon, which actually might end the war, and if I don't use it, and if 50,000 Americans are killed invading the mainland, th this is not going to be good. Uh, and Oppenheimer bought onto that argument. Uh, he also thought that this weapon might be so destructive that it might deter people from fighting the war wars in the future. But you have to use it to show people how horrifying it is. And so if we didn't use it. The next war certainly would use the weapons, and because people didn't know how powerful it was, you know, they could sleepwalk into total Armageddon. So at the but, same, but even further to that point, you you yeah. in your article have Oppenheimer in conflict with another nuclear scientist on whether to drop the bomb first on somewhere unpopulated to show the Japanese leadership its power and hope they surrender just based on that. But no, Oppenheimer wanted to just go ahead and bomb Hiroshima. Why? Well, well it was Leo Szilard, who, who had been one of the scientists along with Albert Einstein to write a letter to President Roosevelt in 1939 warning about the Germans working on a bomb. Szilard organize this petition saying, look, let's not drop this on a on a city. Let's let's drop it. Let's have the Japanese witness a demonstration, say on an unpopulated island or something. And Oppenheimer's point, and this was other people's point too, is like, look, viewed from a distance, it might not look that horrible. Second, what if it's a dud? What if it doesn't go off? Then it's going to be worse than nothing because then you blow up a city 
And the Japanese might think, well, that one worked, but the first one didn't, so we'll hold out longer. And then you might have to use three or four or more. You know, two two bombs were dropped. My, my One thing about the decision to drop the bomb, and this is important, and the film doesn't quite bring this out, there was never really any controversy in the higher councils of government whether to drop this bomb on Japan. The bomb became ready, then it was dropped. Hmm. A second bomb was ready, and it was dropped. A third bomb was going to be ready a few weeks later, but Japan surrendered. If they had not surrendered by that time, it would have been dropped. It was, by this point, kind of an automatic process. And if you think about it, to many people, you know, we didn't know a lot about it. Nobody knew anything about this weapon at the time. It was a top secret project. Truman didn't know about it until 10 days after he became president, hmm. uh, when he was finally briefed about it. Uh, you think, okay, we have this powerful weapon. We've been in this horrible war, this savage war, the war in the Pacific, especially, just a savage war. Here's this new weapon. It might end it. What What is the argument against using this? I mean, I'm, I'm saying this from the point of view at the time. So, right. There was never really a decision to mm. drop the bomb. There would but have what about after they bombed Hiroshima and yeah. saw the unbelievable human toll, they still went ahead and dropped the second bomb on Nagasaki? Well, again, it was ready three days later. That There's still tremendous controversy over whether that was necessary, and I think a case can be made that it might not have been. Uh, three days had passed. The Japanese probably hadn't even had time to contemplate the consequences of it. I mean, there's a cliche, well, we needed to drop uh, the first bomb to show that it worked, and we needed to drop the second bomb to show that we had more than one. Hmm. Well, maybe, but uh, that's not proved. But again, it was a weapon. We were in a war. Here, we dropped the one when it was ready. We dropped the second one when it was ready. That, and, that's And you really also write in your article about the movie, that it's accurate, as shown in the film, that President Truman, after dropping the two bombs on Japan, called Oppenheimer a crybaby for feeling bad about it. What was the context of that? Well, Oppenheimer comes in for a meeting with Truman. You know, Truman wants to congratulate him for, you know, and this was after Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And uh, what Oppenheimer wants to talk about is the need to establish arms control talks, to put some kind of internet that, that that Russia is definitely going to get this bomb too, and we need to put it under some control. And Truman says, I don't think the Russians will ever get this bomb, which is kind of, I, that's true, he did say that. <clears throat> and then at one point, Oppenheimer says, I feel I have blood on my hands, uh, which was probably not the wisest thing for someone in his position to say. And the, the, the report is that Truman takes a handkerchief out of his pocket. There are two versions of the story. One is he takes a handkerchief out of his pocket and hands it to Oppenheimer. And the other, he says, look, if anybody, I have blood on my hands, leave it to me. Uh, in the movie, he just takes out a handkerchief. And then Oppenheimer, as he's leaving the room, you hear Truman say, I don't want that crybaby in here ever again. Well, he did say that later. He didn't say it within earshot of, of Oppenheimer. But but he did, he did say that to, I think, Secretary of State Burns uh, after the meeting. And I was thinking about how this isn't the kind of topic we might think would generate the blockbuster buzz and ticket sales 
to put it alongside something like a Barbie, this kind of serious mm-hmm. historical film about one of the most serious things in human history. Why do you think it is? Do you think it's mostly because it's Christopher Nolan, who people associate with the Batman movies and things like that, and it's that simple? I don't know. I do think that the PR people who dreamed up this whole Barbieheimer thing, I mean, I don't know, Brian, if you ever want to publicize something, find out who came up with that and, <laughs> and, and hire that person no matter what it costs. I mean, the idea that people are actually going to double features of Barbie and Oppenheimer because everybody's doing it is is just i mean it it's it's just mind blowing uh you know there there is uh it 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 i think it 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 will be studied by by business departments uh all over for years or decades to come and that leads us to the Barbie addendum to this Oppenheimer conversation that I told everybody was coming. You have a much shorter article on Slate about the Barbie movie in which you inform us, for example, that the film is banned in Vietnam. And I thought, which of these movies would I have guessed that Vietnam banned? The one about the U.S. government that bombed the hell out of their country or the one about a toy? And it's the one about a toy. Tell us why. Well, there is a scene in Barbie. It lasts. I, I haven't seen the movie yet. I, I plan to, but I've seen the still photo that this is referring to. It lasts a matter of seconds. Barbie is looking at a map of the world, and it's not a real map of the world. But in the middle of this map, in the middle of an ocean, are some dashed lines. So people in Asia looked at that and said, oh, my God, that is the nine dash line. And the nine-dash line is a line that the People's Republic of China has drawn in its official maps of the South China Sea, demarking what they see as China's actual border. This border is disputed by almost every other country. And there have been little wars with Vietnam over the location of this, this line. And so Vietnam took this as a as an acceptance, an acknowledgement of the Chinese border. Ted Cruz (laughs) called the movie a piece of Chinese communist propaganda. Well, you know, Warner Brothers said, look, this is nuts. Uh, This is an an imaginary map. Uh, China really isn't even on the map. There are eight dashes, not nine anyway. But as some person told me, he goes, look, it's a little disingenuous. You know, Hollywood... There's a big China market for Hollywood. Holly, there are not very many films made in the last 20 years where China is the bad guy, where there is a war with China, and that's to protect the China market. And so Warner Brothers is kind of having it both ways. Uh, somebody, somebody told me, put it, well, why put little dashed lines on a map anyway? It's clearly, if somewhat obliquely, a reference. to It's to satisfy China, to make it look like there's mm. the nine-dash line. But there's also a way of covering their butts by saying, well, no, there, there's no real China on this map anyway, and it's only eight lines. So, again, th- this has caused <laughs> a kind of a crazy big storm that, that is in part ludicrous and in part uh, uh, an illustration of the extent to which Hollywood still relies a lot on China for its business. And there we leave it with Fred Kaplan, military affairs columnist for Slate, 
who has written two books on the subject of nuclear war and nuclear weapons, The Wizards of Armageddon, which came out in the 80s, and his 2021 book, The Bomb, Presidents, Generals, and the Secret History of Nuclear War. Fred, thanks so much for coming on and sharing your impressions of Oppenheimer and taking calls. Thank you. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.